0: Stranglings, eye-gouging, riots, hometown heroes, and a drunk woman on a rampage. It's the story of Cora Livingston, part four. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. pro wrestling history nerds. It's me, it's you, it's us, it's we, together again, or for the first time, or for the first time, again? What am I talking about? What's even happening? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker, sometimes a ring announcer, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian, and I am joined yet again by my good pal, an admirable pro wrestler herself. It's Heidi Howitzer. How the heck are ya?
1: Hey everybody, if you can't see me right now, which you can't, I'm waving hello. I'm great. I'm swell. Oh, I've been trying windy. to
0: explain the concept of a podcast tour. It's slowly sinking in. Hopefully, by part <laughs> five, she will have gotten it. We are. I'm all ears. They're not all eyes, so that's why the waving doesn't work.
1: <laughs>
0: we are back to keep talking about the life and times of Cora Livingston. I've been very bad in the last week or so doing the social media stuff, sharing as much information as I usually do, not posting a lot of photos, not sharing the show itself as much. Definitely had a big show. Uh, I usually don't talk about Lucha Libre and Laughs on here, but kind of had a big stressful weekend with the show. It all went well, it went swimmingly, and now I can focus on the more important things like pro wrestling history, uh, Heidi Howitzer, uh, fresh off another big victory herself against Emmy Sakura and Leva Bates. Hopefully you know who those people are, because if you're listening to a wrestling podcast about women's pro wrestling right now, and you don't, I feel like there's some confusion.
1: At least they tried.
0: So we are here in part four of the story of Cora Livingston. And yes, part four implies there are part one, two, and three. I recommend listening to those, because otherwise you'll be like, who's a who's a Because I guess that's how how people talk, I assume, outside of cartoons. It's a big picture story. It's a long form history story. So by all means, start at the beginning, figure out who this woman is. Where did she come from? What kind of character did she develop? What was her importance in the days of the early 1900s? and this will all make a lot more sense. And I wanna give the usual disclaimer because we are doing the best we can with the information that we have. There is no book about Cora Livingston. There is no great documentary series about her. There is no Ken Burns documentary with a folksy narration and slow push-ins on black and white photos. There is no definitive source for her life life story Story. maybe Maybe that's what what we're creating here here. who Who can say
1: i was just gonna say that you took the words right out of my mouth
0: this is the kind of story where she was a star in her day she was an important person in the day she was newsworthy she was in the papers but she was a woman wrestler in the early 1900s working in the shadow of frank gotch george hackenschmidt tom jenkins so a lot of times information about her life her career kind of falls through the cracks there are gaps in the story so i am doing my best to create the best narrative tale i can the closest thing to the truth that i can push together from all the articles all the interviews all the advertisements for her appearances in vaudeville halls all over america and i like to think i'm creating the clearest picture of her life possible who can say (laughs) One would hope. Where we left off last time was in early 1910 when her match was stopped by the police. A policeman walked in, saw her match, declared it to be too brutal and stopped the match despite the hooting and howling of the paying customers. The first time I had really come across the police stepping in and stopping a match like that because it was literally women being violent on a stage tut tut i am a police officer put an end to this please
1: they can't have that kind of raucous behavior
0: and we will pick up on february 16 1910 from the louisville kentucky courier announcing a match that night at the buckingham theater between cora livingston and ada rich promoted by the sam t jacks company the sam t jacks company was a touring burlesque company they were going to the burlesque halls the vaudeville theaters again these matches were not just on a wrestling show or part of a wrestling card it'd be part of a night of general entertainment you would have a comedian a band a short play a juggler a, a big fat guy getting shot with a cannon possibly i don't know but it would be just a stacked card of entertainment and cora would typically be the last act because she knew how to bring the house down, as we have discussed in previous episodes.
1: I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the fat guy. Was it getting shot out of a cannon or getting shot with a cannon?
0: I like to think getting shot out of one cannon and then getting shot with a second cannon while in midair. And if anybody out there wants to try to recreate that for TikTok, I'm not taking any responsibility for what happens, but I would like to see it.
1: I assume it's like a game of Duck Hunt.
0: Oh, yes, snickering dog and all. <laughs> so Cora was at this point well known for being able to be a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a disrupter in a show. She was known for breaking the rules. She was known for pulling hair, for scratching at eyes, for throwing punches, for breaking the rules, getting disqualified, making the crowd so enraged, so passionate that riots nearly break out. And you know what? That really is the perfect way to end a show. You know, you have the comedy, you have the music, you have all of this stuff. And then by all means, don't let them go home feeling satisfied with a night of entertainment. Send them home talking shit because they're so mad that Cora Livingston got (laughs) DQ'd by, I don't know, trying to like set a woman on fire. That, That hasn't happened yet, I don't know if it will. But she would go to such violent extremes and then get disqualified that you would have people who sat through two hours of fun leaving going like that that cora better lose net tomorrow night because i'm coming back to see it how dare she
1: the heels heal and and it's funny because now in these days i believe the turn of phrase is send the fans home happy
0: yeah it's they send it's the, the fans apparently <laughs> yeah it's like you are sending the fans home happy in a way because they are emotionally engaged, which is, you know, what you want in pro wrestling. You want the fans to have strong emotional opinions, to pick sides, to feel things. And Cora understood that for the sake of ticket sales. Again, she strikes me a lot like Evan the Strangler Lewis, who understood that, you know, every time you choke somebody a little too hard or hang on to it a little bit longer, that crowd is going to get mad. And a crowd that hates you, wants to see you lose and when they want to see you lose they will buy tickets hoping to see that finally it's something you see perfected in the 20s with ed the strangler lewis all the way through rick flair there's really just a long history of that heel champ selling tickets to see them lose hopefully and then getting mad when they don't and repeating the cycle and as far as the big media picture, that really did start with Evan the Strangler Lewis, but Cora Livingston is the next logical stop on that on that ladder.
1: Yeah, you know, and there's there's nothing really more magical than seeing someone you just like actively dislike getting the shit kicked out of them.
0: But would that happen on? February 15, 1910, while well, not according to the Louisville, Kentucky Courier, Cora took on Ada Rich, who had previously won $25 by lasting 10 minutes with Cora. Quote, There was some dispute in regard to the time, however. Miss Livingston paid the money, which was done on the stage in view of the audience. So now they had a rematch, and if Ada lasted 15 minutes, she will win $50. Again, $50 is an enormous amount of money. That's thousands of dollars in that time with inflation. So yeah, that's a meaningful purse. That's a meaningful bit of change. And that does add an extra layer of fan involvement to see if not only will Cora lose or lose by not winning in a challenge match like this, but that's a huge amount of money to, in kayfabe, be handing over to the opponent, who is clearly in on the whole thing, and from the circus days to these days, it's a wonderful scam to keep the crowd invested on that imaginary financial angle. From the Davenport Daily Times, March 3rd, 1910, Cora Livingston will give an exhibition before the Jack Leon versus Yusuf Mahmood match in Chicago on March 4th. The Inter-Ocean later named the opponents as Lou Harris and Bertha Smith in a handicap match, where Livingston has to throw them both in 10 minutes. So, we now also have these types of matches where the wrestler is not just throwing one person on a challenge, they have to throw two in a time limit. It doubles the fun, if you will, for the crowd to see if she's going to win, if she's going to lose, because saying, I'm gonna beat up multiple people in one go, definitely, uh, definitely kind of makes it a freak show match. But hey, that's what wrestling's all about.
1: So uh, that's a lot of hair
0: pulling. And if the name Yusuf Mahmoud sounds familiar, well, you've probably listened to the episodes on Frank Gotch or on Tom Jenkins. He was part of that terrible Turk invasion that began in the late 1890s and lasted until the kind of about 1910, 1915 range, where the Ottoman wrestlers would come to Paris conquered everybody there and then one by one they would come to the United States where they would play this wonderful game where they would beat almost all of the Americans and then either Frank Gotch or Tom Jenkins would be the last stop on that tour and they would put over the American champion take their sack of gold and head back across the ocean it was a wonderful foreign menace heel formula possibly the first one of its type and it was very successful and very lucrative for the wrestling industry at the time.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And I had no idea that's where, I mean, obviously, there's always been like the foreign heel. Uh, but I didn't even think about how that's where that could have stemmed from or contributed to, I guess. Probably yeah. more, more so the case.
0: Yeah, the, the Turkish invasion in the U.S. really started with Yusuf Ismail, the original terrible Turk, who was like, and Andre, the giant size man who came over and just cleaned house with everyone. And I don't believe he understood how to work matches based on how everything went <laughs> because he Phanomenal. was beating everyone, including Tom Jenkins. And then he finally came up against Evan, the strangler Lewis. And as I often say, there's two ways to work a match. If everyone's in on it, or if only one person's not in on it so it was a match where they gave he came out wanting to wrestle for real and the referee was there to make sure he got disqualified no matter what he was doing and he got angry he had already made a fortune he left america planning on opening up a little coffee shop back in the ottoman empire unfortunately his ship sank on the way there and he went down oh no yep so instead of a return trip home it was a watery grave for him But every Ottoman wrestler, or fake Ottoman wrestler after that, understood the formula. You beat everybody, and then you lose to the champ. And that was something the European Greco-Roman guys also had to adapt to, like Stanislaw Zabisco, who would come over, kill everyone, and then lose to Frank Gotch, and then go home. But definitely kind of going down a side quest on this. But yeah, it does really kind of set the stage for how wrestling was operating at the time. The walk again, I'm probably mispronouncing that, Illinois New Sun on March 3rd, 1910. Miss Blanche Whitney, heavyweight wrestler, has canceled her and other appearances to head to Chicago to challenge Cora Livingston and Laura Bennett, who
1: are appearing but at... I have to ask, because I'm curious, do they specify the weight range to be the heavyweight women's champion, or was that just an arbitrary name for the title?
0: I'm sure she probably, they were just calling her a heavyweight to make her sound more menacing. There, like wrestling weight classes were a nebulous thing. There was usually a lightweight and a heavyweight at the time, but half the time it was probably based on, well, he looks to be about 180 pounds. He's uh, right. the, the middleweight. Big
1: one, small one. Yeah, nobody's
0: yeah. really getting on a scale back in these days.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Good
0: point. But she went to Chicago to challenge Cora Livingston and Laura Bennett, who were appearing at different theaters at the time. Bennett said she'd do the match for a $200 forfeit slash side bet. Miss Whitney showed up to the theater, but Bennett's manager immediately raised the bet. So a bit of a dirty move there. Hey, I'll I'll wrestle you for $200. You actually show up. It's $500 now.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, you don't have that much? Beat it, deadbeat. <laughs>
1: Get lost, guy. Hit the bricks.
0: From the Huntington Herald on March 5th, 1910, women wrestling stopped at Chicago. Quote, Cora Livingstone, the usual uh, screw-up of her name for people who didn't pay much attention, and Rena Harris, who presented their wrestling bill in Huntington recently, again met a Waterloo in Chicago. It was just getting good, says the Tribune. Miss Livingstone was trying to get a stranglehold on Miss Harris. The latter was industriously boring her right hand in Miss Livingstone's left eye. More than 1,200 men and a dozen women were cheering the contestants on. When it appeared as if Miss Harris would succeed in gouging out Miss Livingstone's eye, or Miss Livingstone would get her famous stranglehold on her adversary, the police stepped in and ended the bout. The two women and another wrestling partner, Miss Daisy Johnston, were taken to the Harris Street Police Station, where they were charged with disorderly conduct. William Rehan, manager of the show, and referee T.F. Richards, also were arrested on the same charge. How wild is that?
1: Absolutely bonkers. Bananas, some might say.
0: The Huntington, Indiana Daily News Democrat on March 7th claimed that, quote, three detectives from the office assistants chief shutter sat in a box during the first few minutes of the contest. Charles O'Donnell, official censor of the police department, was in charge of the men. When O'Donnell decided the wrestlers had gone far enough, he walked back to the stage, followed by detectives Edward Olmacher and Frank Hard. Which sounds, that is like the most hard-boiled, literally hard-boiled detective name, Detective Frank Hard.
1: I was just going to say that. I was like, man, those are great detective names. Like, Phil noir, just top tier.
0: I'm trying to make a joke about how Frank Hard really pulled a boner on that one. (laughs) Fuck. The referee was yelling at them to be more ladylike, but the crowd was whistling in approval. The referee let the cops break it up without explaining anything to the crowd, and announced that the Leon vs. mamut match would start shortly. The Buffalo Inquirer on March 8th made fun of the Chicago police for arresting Cora. Quote, Cora carries her own troop of wrestlers with her, and the strenuous stuff is all a bluff just to get the crowd excited and howl for her opponent, who always hails from the town where Cora is wrestling. There is many a trick in Naturally. the-
1: Naturally, thi- else do you make a proper baby face i really have to change my uh build from location that's all i'm saying
0: there is many a trick in the theater wrestling game but that is one of the oldest and one of the best worked in the business so i love that the police in chicago like see this brutal match and they run in and break it up and drag everyone away and the announcer just had to be like uh the main event will be starting soon (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, about that, no refunds. How hard do you think it was to convince those policemen after the fact, not only on this one and in future incidents, that wrestling is not entirely real? Well, sorry I- guys, hate to hate to break the news to you. Uh, sorry. But that is the case.
0: And that's what I love about that Buffalo Inquirer article because Buffalo was much more of an established wrestling town. Chicago is much yeah. more of an established wrestling state. So I love that the Inquirer was just like, hey, you freaking rubes in Chicago, this is the <laughs> oldest trick in the book. And you walked in like it's real and arrested people. Are you morons? Just totally yeah. dunking on the Chicago police officers. But I guarantee you. Mark. Yeah, exactly, and I I guarantee you, Cora probably because this is back in those days where, you know, it it would have to be like until you were probably at the jailhouse did the manager like talk to the police about it? I'm sure she was take. If I would love it if she was like taken kicking and screaming like a wild (laughs) animal, but the
1: original the original pull apart brawl.
0: Yeah, it's it like I said, it's like they're. The cops are trying to break it up while her opponent's trying to gouge her eye out, and they think it's a real massacre in there, and they just drag everyone out, and the guy just had to be like, well, the main event will be starting here in a minute. No questions.
1: (laughs) Oh, sheesh. Goodness gracious. But
0: but clearly she got out of jail, probably paying a fine, or just the cops being embarrassed at what, what they actually did. Because the Sam T. Jack Company's next stop was the Academy Theater in Pittsburgh on March 13, 1910, it was announced that she'd be doing the $25 for any woman who could last 10 minutes with her challenge, along with three one-act musical comedies.
1: Wow, what a nice time.
0: She failed to throw Mae Nelson with a longer time limit on the 16th, which would lead to a to-a-finish match on Friday, March 19th, This ended with Livingston being DQ'd after Livingston fouled Nelson three times because of course she did.
1: Of course she did. Of course. Naturally. What a mess.
0: And to kind of tie this into the timeline of wrestling, this was also the time when the Maybray gang was sentenced to two years in jail on average. This was a long-reaching sports-fixing syndicate that pre-arranged boxing, wrestling, horse races, and anything else they could for the express purpose of gambling, fix. Wrestler Jack Carkeek did time in prison, as did Oli Marsh. Marsh was one of Frank Gotch's partners in the Alaska scheme, and would later become a promoter, manager of Mara Plastina, and would publicly feud with Billy Sandow in the papers, calling the Goldust Trio's matches fake to push his wrestler as the real deal. So the Maybray gang, this is something where they literally, people would, went to prison for. Great name. For. Yeah, it was a syndicate led by John C. Maybray, which really tried to kind of bridge the gap between pro wrestling as we kind of are discussing it now, and almost a mafia-esque web of con artists going coast to coast, because they were proactive in getting people to bet on things. Like, they would send out pamphlets saying these are the sure bets this is how you want to bet trying to draw people out proactively to give them money on things that they were right. controlling the outcome of and it was just so big it was literally nationwide it was, too, it was too obvious people were getting too greedy and literally people went to jail for fixing wrestling matches in the early 1900s when john Maybray got out of jail it was in kansas city They literally told him, get the things out of your house and get the fuck out of town. That was the police telling them that he was like, you're going to have to arrest me for vagrancy for living in my own house. And it was literally like (laughs) that level of dirt on it. Like Ole Marsh, him and Frank Gotch pretty much fleeced gold miners in the Klondike during the gold rush. And he came back and just kept going with the Mabry gang, did a couple years in jail, and then got out and started doing his own promoting. But yeah, this was a big deal because back in these days, the reason you could fix matches of every kind was there were no athletic commissions breathing down your neck. That's one of the reasons athletic commissions started in the, the 1920s, 1930s was to make and sure Missouri's you... is still kicking. Oh yes. And it was to make sure that pro wrestling almost specifically was kept as entertainment not as a way to fleece betters,
1: Which is a real shame. We could be making money hand over fist right now.
0: <laughs> we really, we're really blowing it. We, mm, yep. The Washington, D.C. Times, March 27th, 1910, an advertisement for new Lyceum Challenge appearance for Cora, courtesy of the Sam T. Jackson Company. Next week, frolic some lambs. <laughs> again plenty of time limit wins and disqualifications by fouls more matches with bertha smith whom i wish i could find more info on i can barely piece together Cora's story so trying to do much for her eternal traveling victims would be daunting (laughs) i think is not the best way to put
1: it yeah you would have your work cut out for you for a lifetime probably
0: yeah because it's so interesting to see these bit players in the background these women who were there to prop up Cora on these tours or be draws on their, on the kind of the B circuits there where Cora wasn't in town. And I would love to know more about them because they're doing the same carny thing. They just weren't the top star. Jobber to the stars. And as brutal as she was, the Hartford Courant on March 30th, 19 claimed that quote off the mat, she is a perfect
1: little lady. Hmm. You know, Somehow, I I somewhat doubt that. Although maybe she just got out all those pent-out emotions in the ring, I get it. I understand. I am a rather pleasant person myself. So they say. Or maybe it's acting! Aha! (laughs) Smoke and mirrors.
0: The Washington Herald was more expansive with an article the same day, boasting of chorus 50 championship matches and 300 public appearances. Claimed that she is well-educated, spoke three languages, was a talented musician, and is an entertaining talker on other subjects. Not sure how much of that is made up, could just be showbiz buzz bullshit, but it's also the days of immigrant acts and vaudeville tours, so anything is possible. If she was really spending that much time in Canada, I'm maybe she picked up enough French, maybe she was dealing with enough German traveling acts. Who could possibly say there was a lot more languages spoken in different neighborhoods in different parts of the country than there are today? From the Washington Herald on March 29th, Cora Livingston was disqualified in her match against Lena Miller of Washington because of course she would have the hometown hero to beat up on. She then beat Bertha Smith on the 30th in nine minutes. And the rematch against Lena Miller on April 1st was covered by the Washington Herald. Quote The crowd was worked into a perfect frenzy of excitement as the athletes struggled and mauled each other on and off the mat. The conditions of the match were that the winner was to receive a purse of $100 put up by management. I know, in those days, that was a lot. Yeah. To put it in context, with inflation, that would be around $3,100 today. So, a heck of a payday, even if it was a legitimate match. Yeah, no shit. But all strangleholds were to be barred, and any falls only on the mat were counted. So, you can see where the work is about to uh, to come into play.
1: Of course.
0: The, refer- Naturally. the referee wouldn't count a pin Livingston landed with a crotch and half Nelson hold because they were slightly off the mat. Quote, During the next five minutes, The champion became desperate and tried every hold known to the grappling art. Twice, she strangled her opponent and was warned by the referee. Growing desperate, she attempted... has
1: never stopped her before.
0: (laughs) She attempted another stranglehold after the athletes had wrestled 17 minutes and the bout was awarded to the Washington woman. The decision was met with a loud burst of applause from the audience. The Washington Herald then, on April 2nd, with a headline reading, Cora Livingston uses stranglehold too much.
1: (laughs) And if you have listened to our previous episodes, you might know that that indeed seems to be the case. If she had a uh, go-to signature move, it was indeed the stranglehold. She had a stranglehold on the stranglehold. There we go. Good one.
0: And again, the heel champ formula for worked matches is on full display here. So instead of being an unbeatable clean champ, she loses via DQs and roughs up the opponents, which is the perfect way to get heat and to put over her opponents, the babyfaces, without actually, without beating them or them winning clean and winning the title. So it creates a perfect eternal dynamic where she is up against the valiant local woman and then gouges eyes and strangles her and gets warned many times and the crowd is going apeshit because they want her to lose and then finally it's a disqualification so technically the local woman loses the moral order of the universe has been validated everybody cheers for essentially their own (laughs) sense of right and wrong put together in a crazy heel match with strangleholds
1: you have to wonder well i wonder i guess hmm don't know about anyone else do you think there uh, was uh, ever a number of people who decided to try and go into business for themselves in these challenges? I feel. Like... I know. I know it was always pretty much. All, it was always worked though. So I mean, realistically, would that would that be a concern? It,
0: it was because it happened. Uh, shoot, you know, shooters, uh-huh. and because that was a problem where you would have in the carnival days, because you would have the. You know, the, the carnival wrestler, you'd have the two mm-hmm. workers that would do the worked match to make it all look nice. They do the demonstration. And if one of them was the shooter, well, then they would do the challenge matches. Otherwise they would bring out the shooter to do the challenge matches. And a lot of right. times they had a plant in the audience, somebody who went to the town a week early, and then they get up and put on a match with the you know the shooter that was also worked. And then he would last like 15 minutes And then he'd be like, all right, well, I'll do more challenge matches, but you got to come back tonight because I'm kind of tired now. And they get him to come back and buy another ticket. Or that would set up the locals to think they could be super confident. And then the, you know, the local goofball would come up and get stretched to fuck. But then you would also have the person who would be in the crowd under a fake name. Like this is what happened to Frank Gotch early in his career. Frank Gotch started on the circus level, and one day a guy was like, "Oh, I'm just a simple furniture mover from Omaha, and I can wrestle a little," and went up there and mopped the floor with Frank Gotch because that <laughs> simple furniture mover from Omaha was Dan McLeod, the man who beat oh, Farmer Burns. So <laughs> he did event. I mean, he eventually won from Farmer Burns, legitimately or not. That's a whole different conversation. But Gotch was so impressive that he that McLeod introduced him to Farmer Burns to get like a proper grappling education. But there was a constant look over-your shoulder screw job capacity in the pro wrestling game. The problem was, is what happens if you do? Because sometimes you try to shoot on somebody. Well, that's just opening it up the possibility that they are legitimately better than you. There was also usually a home court advantage, something that came from the circus days where you would have like some turpentine like on the bottom of your shoe or some ammonia in your hair on the back. So that if somebody's shooting on you and you're concerned, well, you rub your back, your head and then you rub their eyes to get ammonia in their eyes or the turpentine, you'd know, get you like put your thumb on your shoe in the grappling uh, position. And then thumb and no one eye.
1: can see my face right now, it is horrified. Yeah. I would not I would not do well.
0: <laughs> or another dirty trick is they would have a soft spot in the mat and therefore or in the ring. So if somebody was legitimately able to bowl them around a bit, you position in them so they roll their ankle because you know where the oh, soft spot is. So there were up. endless dirty tricks on that. And that's why when you started having, you know, the days of the Goldust Trio, they would have the, you know, they would control everything. They would control the referee. They would make sure they had everyone under contract to make sure they could control everything and nobody could really go into business for themselves. They would say, well, Ed Lewis, who was reportedly an amazing shooter as the champion. But in order to get to him, if you were an outside party, you'd be like, oh, I could beat Ed the Strangler Lewis, I'm a better legitimate wrestler, and all his matches are phony. Well, what usually happened is Billy Sandow would say, "Cool. Well, if you can beat John Pesek, for example, in a shoot match, you can get a contract and be a member, and you can get a match against Ed Lewis, the Nebraska Tiger Man." John Pesek wasn't what, in wrestling terms, there's the shooter, the guy who is a legitimate wrestler. There is the hooker, the guy who can catch a submission really well. And the most brutal term is Ripper, which is the guy who goes out looking to harm, going out to injure, possibly going out to maim. It ties nice to...
1: terrifying.
0: Yeah, it, it ties to that, you know, when I was talking about Ole Marsh, he did that same thing. He came out and said, Marin Placina is the real deal and Ed Lewis is a phony. So it pissed off Billy Sandow. He made an arrangement for a match between Pesic and Placina and... Placina was nearly lost both of his eyes. He was hospitalized for weeks. Pesic and his manager were blacklisted and banned from New York wrestling for a very long time over it because he went out there to, it's like a mob movie. You, he was sent out to, yeah. he, it was, it wasn't, he wasn't there to win a match. He was there to teach a lesson. So, yes, he was, so that's kind of like the multiple layers on why you never really go into business for yourself. In these days, it was a little simpler. It was mostly if I do this, no one will ever want to work with me again. You know, it's it's not something that I can recover from career-wise. If I like, if one of these women shot on Cora Livingston and could actually manage to win a match, because it did sound like she was a little bit of a psychopath, no matter what, so she yeah. she struck me as somebody who would strangle you, who would go for your eye if she felt like she was legitimately in risk. And if you did that, well, congratulations. Now this entire vaudeville circuit, all this showbiz uh, money, all these appearances, that door now shuts in your face because you can't be trusted. Right. So one thing I do want to talk about is the scale of pay. This is going to be shocking. Women athletes in these days did not make the same amount as their male counterparts. I know that's that's shocking. That's but It's, they, it's you, because
1: they made because they made more right oh
0: yeah no of course Uh, unfortunately not the case because we've talked about how 50 to 100 dollars a night was a damn good payday if that was real in those days but it was a fraction of what the men were making at the time the reason is the lack of huge shows at ballparks and big arenas for the women wrestlers because Cora was drawing hot she would draw a thousand people, 1,200, 1,500 people, which is an enormous crowd by wrestling standards as we think of them. But put that in context of Gotch and Hackenschmidt, which would draw 10,000 people, or the rematch, they would draw 25,000 people. Obviously, the the money they can trade hands, especially in the betting, because the sports betting is where so much of the money came from in wrestling in these days it wouldn't be a guarantee there might be a purse that would be split 75-25 between winner and loser but the betting was everything frank gotch was notorious for giving up the second fall in two out of three matches to make sure that people would bet against him going into the third and then he would clean up having bet on himself so very crafty oh no he was a goddamn manipulative genius he even knew that Like, at one point, he dropped the belt by running into the ring post and being pinned while he was dazed to make sure that everybody saw him as being more vulnerable going into the next big match after he got his belt back. So he was manipulative as fuck when it came to... He was
1: a fucking
0: worker. But when you look at the side bets that we talk about with Cora, it's a $50 side bet, a $100 side bet, a $200 side bet but when it came to guys like Gotch and Jenkins, Hackenschmidt, Zabisco, they were putting down side bets of $500 or $1,000, which is the equivalent. So if you put down $1,000 as a side bet or $1,000 purse in 1910, that's around $31,000 today. So you had these guys cleaning up $30,000 five, six times a year. These guys were making bank because they were able to bring in the bigger crowds, but that doesn't mean that Cora was, you know, living in the poorhouse. She was doing very well for herself, but when you put it in the context of 1910 women's sports, that's still a superstar level.
1: Right. But like, that's insane, the disparity, but also again, you know, what's, what's changed in a hundred years?
0: Because honestly, one of the biggest booms for women in combat sports, both pro wrestling, MMA, and boxing has been the internet. Because the exposure to YouTube, to Twitter, to the ability to see clips, to make a demand for a product that did not appear on television that you would see beforehand really has upped the stakes for, the, you know, for women in that sport. Ronda Rousey was able to carry pay-per-view points and a lot of that was on the back of internet fame and you know just that type of that type of uh heat that you would get from the internet fandom people who would have come out wanting to see her win want to see her lose so yeah we kind of had numerous booms in women's pro wrestling in america the biggest one being during world war ii when all the men were off fighting or at least entertaining the troops somewhere um back in 1905 ish during this this era and kind of the last i'd say five to ten years in America. And another bit to kind of add context so you kind of know where we are in sports history. On April 2nd, the DC Evening Star reported that after 58 minutes of wrestling between Mahmoud and Americus, both men were badly injured and the police stopped the bout. The decision was awarded to Mahmoud. Also that boxer Jim Jeffries was chased up a tree by a bull while out for a run during his training camp for the fight of the century against champion Jack Johnson.
1: That is very effective training. Yeah, I feel like that. that. really gets the heart rate going, right? And
0: I picture it kind of being sped up with, like, yackety sax playing. It's very <laughs> cartoonish in my mind. Perfect. Uh, the same sports paper reported that an outfielder for the Chicago Americans was reported to have smallpox. That's right. We're still in a time where people could catch smallpox. fucking smallpox. Yeah, this wasn't the Old West, but it wasn't honestly that far removed. But it wasn't the New West either. Yeah, so you legitimately would have people be like, oh no, I'm sorry, I can't do sports today. I have smallpox.
1: (laughs) Oh, sorry, I can't come to band practice. I have the Black Plague.
0: Again, pre-antibiotics was a whole different world. It's kind of like, have you heard of trachoma? I have not. It's a infection in your eyes that causes calluses like almost like shark skin to grow on the inside of your eyelids and scratch the shit out of your eyes.
1: Oh uh, fucking awful. It
0: it was and still is. And it was easily spread in the wrestling world because you know, you'd get it on your you touch your eyes and touch the mat or touch your eyes and touch the person and then they touch their eyes and it would be a horrific infection you'd have to be treated with a salve it would eventually go away for most people but ed lewis had some sort of horrific mutated version of it that haunted him most of his life it was curable once they invented antibiotics but until they had antibiotics it was literally like well hopefully i don't go blind before this goes away
1: jesus i'd be called the strangler too if i had eyelids with shitty calluses Mm.
0: but back to the story of cora because in april of 1910 she was back at the wilson theater in baltimore and meanwhile the st louis globe democrat on april 9th 1910 announced that lulu bennett meaning laura would be at the standard theater with her sister doing the boxing wrestling rope skipping fencing etc burlesque act The paper mentioned her claimant of being the world champion and her rivalry with Cora Livingston. The St. Louis star and times claimed that, quote, Miss Bennett is considered a much more clever wrestler than Cora Livingston. Damn. Ooh, yeah, that's a pretty sick burn for the day.
1: Yeah, you don't have to uh, cut a promo on your opponent when the fucking bird sheets are.
0: And for those who might not remember who the Bennett sisters were or... just starting with this episode it didn't hear about it at all the bennett sisters were a vaudeville family and the sisters would give boxing and wrestling demonstrations do the challenge matches primarily just kind of competing between themselves for the sake of exhibition but bennett would do the challenge matches she would do the the open i'm gonna wrestle whoever's in the crowd for 25 dollars. she also had a match with cora livingston earlier in her career That ended when hairpins became detached from hairdos, hair was tumbling down, wackiness ensued, the sort of things you only get in wrestling at this day.
1: Yeah, hair never gets messed up in 2023.
0: And the trash talking continued. Laura Bennett went on to Indianapolis and told the Indianapolis star that Livingston is a quote, would-be champion. Whoa. The same paper on April 19th reported that, quote, "...many of the spectators remarked the difference between the work of this young woman and Cora Livingston, who appeared here during the winter. Miss Bennett, who is a handsome young woman of a small build, does not resort to rough tactics, but depends entirely upon her cleverness, and while she does not look extraordinarily strong, yet she has a wonderful amount of reserve energy and power." Bennett was also being matched against women that Livingston either couldn't beat or could barely beat so they are booking this rivalry smart you're having Bennett being propped up as the technical wrestler who never needs to do a foul and that Livingston is a would-be champion and is actually just a brute and then Bennett is booked to beat the women that Livingston would either lose to via disqualification or would barely pull out a victory over, or who would outlast her in a time limit match. So we are really kind of stacking the drama here with Livingston now looking like a brute who couldn't possibly beat the more technical wrestler in Bennett. Right,
1: an underdog here, as opposed to your fighting champ.
0: August 20th, the Newark Evening star and Newark advisor an ad for Miners Empire Theater, Cora Livingston, along with the Jardin de Paris girls, tickets 10 cents, 15 cents, and 25 cents. From the Buffalo Enquirer on August 3rd, 1910, quote, Jack Mills and his wife Cora Livingston, the champion wrestler, with her little boy, 27 months old, left today for New York, where they joined the Jardin de Paris burlesque company. So, Again, we kind of had that little drama of her stepping away for a season and reportedly being married and having a kid. A little more evidence right. leaning into that uh, into that narrative. And she would join the Jardin de Paris Burlesque Company, which she would travel with them for quite some time. They were, again, just a different burlesque troupe. It would be chorus girls, a little more leaning towards burlesque than vaudeville, but still... Just a bunch of showbiz fun leading up to a wrestling match every single night.
1: And nice progressive views on um, a working mother
0: Carl oh. Livingston. This actually is true for 1910. Good point.
1: hmm Those are the only points I make. On September
0: 7th, 1910, a match versus Mae Nelson. Around 13 minutes into the match, a riot nearly broke out as the fans tried to storm the ring over Livingston's rough tactics, but were stopped by the police. The match resumed two days later, with Livingston losing for the first time ever, but it wasn't for the title. According to the Pittsburgh Press, and quote, Women Wrestlers and Hair Pulling Match, 2,000 men and boys tried to stop a wrestling match at the Academy of Music last night between Cora Livingston, champion woman wrestler of the world, and Mae Nelson of the south side. Kicking and gouging in their match enraged the spectators and their shouts could be heard for a square. Eight policemen under Captain John Dean were called to prevent a riot.
1: Eight. Eight policemen. After plenty
0: of punches were thrown in the match, quote, those in the front row attempted to climb onto the stage but were pulled back. When the match had been on for 13 minutes, the theatre management ordered the wrestlers off the stage and tried to pacify the mob. This did not suffice. The Buffalo Enquirer on September 9th, 1910 reported that, quote, soon after the match began, Cora Livingston began kicking her adversary and groups in the audience shouted to referee Archie Parker to stop the contest. When Miss Nelson was prostrate on the mat, the champion struck her several hard blows. Excitement in the audience reached fever heat. While hundreds of men yelled themselves hoarse, the women fought viciously. Hair pulling was included, with together rough tactics. Cora's husband, Jack Mills, later telegraphed the paper. Quote, the two will wrestle to a finish tonight in some theater, and the house is already sold out, he adds. It reminds us of similar scenes here in Buffalo in which the same young woman worked in the same old act. So we, I, I I, would love to know what the intent was. Was it a, was the intent for them to cause a riot? Was it intent? Because that's a lot of cops to be there. Eight cops yeah. on, on hand for a vaudeville show seems on, excessive.
1: Seems like a lot. They're, they're like, well, Cora's in town, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, she was, it's kind of like, you know, when the doors would play back in the sixties and the cops would have to be there to make sure nobody's smoking weed or whatever right. on stage. And I feel that maybe there was a legitimate need for law enforcement at Cora Livingston matches because shit was just getting so wild. I'm sure the promoter probably had to pay for the extra security, but considered it worthwhile because it makes it seem more dangerous, more extreme. So was the intention to actually start a riot, to really kind of get it, push things that far? or was it incidental and they just wrote it? You know, they did they kind of just ride the wave of the crowd trying to get at the performers and the cops having to beat them back? Because honestly, if you're trying to sell tickets off of heel Heat, whether you mean to or not, whether it was intentional or incidental, I don't know a way to top that without somebody dying.
1: Yeah. And I mean, they could have probably worked that too.
0: And this went on to the rematch, the Pittsburgh Press on September 10th, 1910. Cora Livingston was thrown by Mae Nelson. According to this article, Mae Nelson pinned Cora in 11 and a half minutes to win the $100. Quote, according to the dope, this is actually the first time that the champion had her shoulders placed on the mat. Prior to her appearance last night, she had wrestled over 300 matches.
1: Wow, that's a big deal.
0: Yeah, but there was no big to do about it, no title switch, no explanation. Just tonight, Miss Livingston. That meets. Happened. Yeah, just tonight Miss May Livingston meets May Martin and Hazel Kennard in 10 minute bouts for a $25 purse. They just kind of gloss over it. The Pittsburgh Post on the 19th claimed that it ended with, quote, the champion landing squarely on her shoulders on one corner of the mat. So I'm guessing flying and rolling falls were counted. Um, if you don't know what a flying and rolling fall oh, was,
1: thank God because I have no fucking clue.
0: Yeah, it's it's something that was part of the Greco-Roman kind of heritage of pro wrestling. Something you see a lot with wrestlers like Carkeek, Muldoon, Whistler, that era where it didn't have to be a you know an actual pin with a one, two, three. It's literally if I if you suplex somebody and they land on their shoulders, just even for a second, that's a fall. Or even if you like knock somebody back and they do a back roll, but they land, you know, they back roll over their shoulders, that's a fall. So just Look, if you, well,
1: I'm just gonna throw this out here, but maybe we should bring that rule back for Triple L.
0: They tried bringing it back in the 1920s in New York, and it was a disaster. Listen to my <laughs> series about no one was having it. Yeah, listen to my series about the Gold Dust Trio, an old-timey rule that really had its day, and it really didn't work, and they moved on to the traditional pinning style. The Buffalo Times on September eleventh, 1910 claimed that, quote, The champion was stunned and had to be assisted off the stage. Later, it was stated by attaches of the academy that there had been no fall, but referee Mason said there was a fall and I gave it to Miss Nelson. She won the match fairly and squarely. So, I'm very I have a lot of theories on this. Did Cora take a bump wrong and was kind of KO'd and the ref had to call it? Maybe they gave Mae Nelson a non-title win out of fear that the crowd would legitimately riot this time if Cora won or got DQ'd again. So, again, was it something where they had to do it to kind of wrap things up cuz she hit her head and was just out you know was just out and needed to uh, have the match come to an end did they just kind of kayfabe walked past the title uh, match part of things or was it just okay we pushed things too far and either for our own self-preservation uh to make nelson look good or maybe even the police saying we're not putting up with this a second time motherfuckers. they ended up yeah. doing a kind of a schmozzy win for nelson but without the belt changing hands. And thus they didn't make a big deal out of it.
1: Well, and that's what I was going to say is like, that feels like a very real possibility or all of that feels like a very real possibility when that was the first time she'd been pinned in however long <laughs> in matches after matches after matches. And they're just like, eh, she lost.
0: Yeah. So I, I feel like there were real circumstances behind it whether it was the injury finish or something to keep shit from going down or maybe under order of police all of these are viable options
1: maybe she just fell over
0: yeah she had a whoopsie doodle was there a banana peel in the ring i have played a lot of (laughs) mario kart i know how that can go and one more quick story before we call it a day on this episode this is from the pittsburgh press on september 8th of that year there's the story of police officer Myers, who was worried that a drunk woman named Annie Evans was actually Cora Livingston, because Annie, quote, having had several unnecessary drinks, and she was willing to wrestle with a...
1: <laughs> Hold on. I have to know how many drinks is considered unnecessary. I guess I guess it probably varies from person to person, but...
0: But yeah, Phenomenal. I, I, apparently she was, she was rather lit, as the kids would say on the interwebs and she had several unnecessary drinks, and she was willing to wrestle with anything supposed to be human. Myers finally landed her in the patrol wagon, but he admitted this morning that she won the first fall, her footwork was superb, said the officer, and she was a complete surprise to him. So, in Pittsburgh, where Cora Livingston worked quite often, some drunk woman was just apparently whooping ass left and right. Throwing hands. And even through the cop once before he was able to subdue her and get <laughs> her in the fucking wagon.
1: <laughs> also, can we laugh about a police wagon just in general? Oh,
0: yeah. No, the idea, a- the old paddy wagon idea, the old, the old cop wagon. Wee-
1: wee- uh, clip clop, clip clop, clip clop. Yeah, so,
0: but I just love that this in 1910, this woman was just on a drunken rampage wanting to wrestle everything, quote, supposed to be human so thank goodness there right. were chimpanzees or a bigfoot nearby and <laughs> she was just throwing people left and right until a cop tried to stop her and he th- he got thrown too but i like that he said she won the first fall and her footwork was superb
1: <laughs> yes he had a, a great sense of humor about the whole whole thing
0: and on that bit of madness, we're going to call it quits for today. Part four is in the books, part five is yet to come. I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this long form examination of Cora's life, kind of spending so much time getting into the minutiae so we can focus on stories like this, of riots, of violence, of mistaken identities because a woman is on a rampage, and oh God, what if it was Cora Livingston? Could I have even handled her as a police officer? the cops getting involved, a possible KO finish, and there is still plenty more to come.
1: I hope Cora Livingston just uh, strangles a police officer at some point. That's That's really what I want in game to be here.
0: So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with part five. We will finally get to a big showdown between Cora and Laura Bennett, but that's a tale for two weeks from now. In the meantime, how are you enjoying this series so far?
1: Oh, I love it. It's phenomenal. Every week, you know, something new is unveiled and uh, a new police officer has another crisis.
0: Did you think that in 1910, women's wrestling would be so vibrant, so explosive, so well done both creatively and commercially, or if it even existed at all?
1: No, especially not when the divas era exists.
0: And that's why I hope the audience is in the same position, being excited by learning that all of this happened, all of this existed. This was a chapter in history that kind of gets glossed over not examined and is wild and crazy as anything else in the world of sports. I will try to do a better job now that I don't have a big stressful show on my shoulders to put out a bunch of the articles, the press clippings, the, the just insane things that I'm finding about Cora Livingston that now live on my hard drive. And we'll be back to the story in two weeks. For Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossert. This is Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Talk to you then.